This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello, good morning, good day. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. A belated Yom Ha'atzma'ut Sameach. Happy Israel Independence Day to all who observe. For some reason the other day, I was walking around because two of my kids go to Jewish day school, so they know all the holidays that I might otherwise overlook. And I just had a little melody in my head, a little earworm that went, Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Yom Ha'atzma'ut. That just like came from your brain. It doesn't exist anywhere. It came from my brain. Only in Western Massachusetts. There's nowhere else where this is actually well, a that's tune. the Friendlies jingle, right? <laughs> Yom Ha'atzma Fribble. Where they serve you the, the blue and white Sunday. Today on the show, we bring you a conversation with actress and neuroscientist Mayim Bialik, whose directorial debut, As They Made Us, is out now. Our Gentile of the Week is Eddie Chang, who runs one of the biggest Buy Nothing Facebook groups. That's B-U-Y, Buy Nothing, like Purchase Nothing Facebook groups in New York City. But before all that, we we want to do our weekly check-in. Stephanie Butnick, I believe we got you to watch Licorice Pizza, my favorite movie of the past four to six years. Liel has seen it, right, Liel? I sure have. And Stephanie, it was somewhat controversial. We actually had listener mail from someone, I'll read the letter later, uh, who, who basically said, don't believe the hype, you're going to hate it, trust me. I mean, there were, there were haters. And then, of course, there are lovers, your co-hosts. What did you think? So you guys loved the movie. I had already gotten a text, I think the night before, being like, this movie is effing weird and the Jewish stuff is weird too. Then I heard from a bunch of people like sliding into my DMs on Instagram, basically saying like, don't listen to Mark and the L. The movie's not good. It's almost offensive to people. It's a very weird experience to go into a movie with people having told, it doesn't happen that often. Right, loaded down with preconceptions. Usually it's like, oh, this movie's amazing. You have to watch it. Yeah. But people were like very, it's a quite polarizing picture, as my my grandmother would say. Picture, not polarizing. I'm going to say, it was like fine. Like I, like I come down like squarely in the <laughs> middle. I was like expecting to be like torqued in one direction. And I was like, okay. You give it a meh. I give it a, okay, yeah, literally I give it a meh. I was like sort of stressed watching it too because I was like, am I in like a film class where I'm going to like be expected to opine on this movie? Okay, I want to get to what you thought was just fine about it and the pluses and minuses. And then I think Liel and I will try to sell the world on it because it is an important Jewish film. Just to be clear, it's it's the new movie from Paul Thomas Anderson who did Boogie Nights and Magnolia and is just one of the great directors of our time. It's set in the San Fernando Valley in the 1970s, maybe 72 or 73, outside Los Angeles, a little bit seedy, working class, you know, definitely sort of the lesser cousin to, you know, Malibu and Hollywood and all that stuff closer to the ocean. And it's the story of a 15-year-old guy played by Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, Cooper Hoffman, who falls in love with a mid-20s woman he meets who's working at his high school, played by Alana Haim of the rock band Haim, the Israeli-American Angelino rock band Haim. It's pronounced Haim. Haim. And it's just the hijinks that ensue as he tries to woo her and just kind of the crazy scene, like the the advent of waterbeds as a big fad becomes an important plot point. There's some real people who get brought into the movie, like real historical characters who actually get fictionalized in the movie. And it's kind of like, what was the seedier side of LA like in the early 70s as seen through these kind of quirky people who are having a weird, slightly forbidden romance? Is that a fair? It's a, it's a very fair description. I want to take three kind of metaphysical stabs at why I think this is perhaps the greatest or one of the greatest Jewish films ever made. Ready for this one? Okay. Okay. First of all, this is hardly an interesting or new observation, but there is something really, I think, inherently goyish about the sort of like story that has a beginning, a middle and an end, because everything about Jewish life and Jewish storytelling 
kind of militates against this. Even the way we celebrate and observe our holidays is completely cyclical and sort of intertwined and predicated on the notion that things don't just begin and then progress towards some happy ending. Rather, they go in kind of circles of cycles, which this movie does very, very well. There is no plot. Uh, and if that bothers you, it's not a movie for you because the whole point is that life doesn't have a plot. It progresses. And this leads me to my second point. It progresses in teeny tiny inflection points that at the moment may not seem incredibly interesting or important, but are the details that make up the fabric of life, which is why if you study Talmud, for example, you know that Judaism doesn't just say like, well, you know, abortion is never okay, or, you know, same-sex marriage is always bad. It actually breaks down every conceivable permutation of every issue into a series of hundreds and hundreds of, of different little occasions. And this is kind of what this movie does. It allows you, in fact, it forces you to stop and look at the granular details that actually make up life and culture. And then third of all, most importantly, there's the scene. And Mark, before we talk about this, I'll have you set it up of that dinner and her family is played by her actual family. These are right. her parents, including her awesome, Isra very Israeli dad. Moti. Moti Haim. Uh, now, tell us, tell us about the scene. She brings her boyfriend, uh, who is a Hollywood heartthrob. Right. She brings it. Well, he's a Hollywood heartthrob, like among child actors. He's like 18 Correct. or 19. Yes. And he's sort of this like mega douche who is, who he's not the main character whom we're sort of, I was rooting for. He's like a frenemy of the main character, also active in the child actor scene. And they're both sort of past their prime child actors. But anyway, so this guy is dating Alana briefly. She brings him home to Shabbos dinner. And they's, and the father, Moti, says, you know, maybe you'd like to make a bracha over the, the bread or the wine or whatever. Amen. Nice. Lance, are you ready for a nice dinner? Very ready. Thank you for having me again. Wonderful. Are you ready to do a barucha on the challah? Oh, wow. Thank you. Uh, however, I must respectfully refuse. I'm an atheist. You're Jewish. Well, uh, you're certainly right. I, I was born into Judaism, but my personal path has led me to atheism. You see, I just can't believe there's a God when I see all the suffering in the world. Vietnam. That's your example, dude? <laughs> right. That's your recent historical example? And then the best part is that she chases him outside. What does your penis look like? What? What does your penis look like? Like a regular penis, I guess. Is it circumcised? Yeah. Then you're a fucking Jew! Which is the best example of pure, unmitigated, uncomplicated, simple Jewish pride that I have ever seen in popular culture in the last 30 years. Not, oh, well, let's not think it and complicate it uh, and, and have something about Oslo or Munich and uh, morality, responsibility of revenge. But rather, you know what? We're Jews. We're proud of it. We don't fucking care. It's it's elemental. It's essential. It's so beautiful. And the Chaims are just like, what a family. And I want to add one more thing, right? The scene where Cooper Hoffman's character is trying to get Alana Heim some work as an actor, and he brings her, he introduces her to this agent who's, of course, the like chain-smoking gravel voice woman is like, hey, babe, I'm going to book you on something. 
the agent basically looks at her and says, well, you seem, you seem very talented. You have a nice figure. And you also have a very Jewish nose. You're a goddamn fucking fighter, aren't you? I like that. I can see that. You come here trying to be all pretty for me. But really, you remind me of a dog. Of an English pit bulldog with sex appeal and a very Jewish nose. (laughs) (laughs) And she keeps everything, you know, she has Alana Haim kind of talk to her and she's like, you might screen test well and you might be great at this. But let's get back to your nose. It's very Jewish, isn't it? First of all, it shows you something about Hollywood and what a rough place it is and what a rough place it is to look ethnic in any way, shape, or form. But it also forces... Jewish audiences to look at this Jewish actress and see through her eyes what it must be like to be a beautiful, talented person going through life with some people saying to you, oh, and by the way, you're obviously Jewish, right? Some people who are very likely Jews themselves doing this to you while you feel the simple pride that doesn't succumb to this bullshit. I like took this note that I was sort of like, what is the purpose of her Jewishness? Like, I I think it's weird because I feel like all the time we're like, why isn't there like, you know, nuanced Jewishness portrayed in movies? Why is it always stereotype? And like it kind of happened here. But I was sort of like, why is it that just Alana Haim is Jewish and he like cast her family? Like there was something weird about it. No, because it's defiant because so much of it is set against the backdrop. If I may, this is a very contemporary movie, even though it's set in the 70s. It's set against the backdrop of a culture falling the fuck apart. A culture predicated on a whole host of like niceties and virtues that no one fucking believes in that is actually rooted in in greed and insecurity and, and a whole host of like hot air that is dying to be let out. And as always, the Jew as perpetual outsider is the only truth teller, the only person who stands up to all the self-glamorizing, self-mythologizing bullshit and say, actually, no, you're all full of shit. You're all just a bunch of hateful people who are trying to promote your own interests. Fuck you. We're going to be on the outside and we're going to triumph, baby. You know, listening to Liel theorize this movie reminds me, first of all, why he is a good columnist. Whether you agree with his columns or not, he's good. He has takes. I don't have any theories. I have no master theories, right? I'm just watching this movie. And of course, this movie takes me back. I love movies set in the Valley. I, You know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, American Graffiti. These movies, they're mana. Also, greatest soundtrack for any movie of a very, very long time. But also, I'm going to say something that I think is akin to what you're saying, but with less theoretical polish which is that I like a movie like this set in a in a world not so long ago, but also light years away, right? Pre-cell phone, pre-email, pre-internet, pre-polarization of the kind we have now that just shows that there is actually a different way to be. There's actually a different kind of childhood to have. There's a different kind of adulthood to have. There's a different way the film industry can look. And some of it's horrible, right? I mean, the, it, early in the movie, if I'm not mistaken, when she's working the high school yearbook photo racket, the photographer like smacks her ass just just casually. And she kind of looked, did, did you catch that, Stephanie? She like grimaces. Yeah, she like grimaces and and kind of, if you, if you blink for a second, you miss it because it happens fast and her reaction is fast. And the reaction is so sad because it indicates like, well, that's what a woman is used to right. in that era, right? Like she's not, what's she gonna do, complain about it? I mean, there was so much of that kind of casual abuse in those days. So it wasn't necessarily a better world, but it was a different world. And some of the differences 
were good, actually, that that in some ways it was a world in which people actually spent time together more and had conversation together more and had to make their own fun in interesting and creative ways. And that made the film industry different. And it made... And, and that there was boredom and that there was kind of, you had to had to actually construct meaning for yourself, that an app wasn't going to give it to you. And I just like, to me, it was a window into a different sensibility. And by the way, a sensibility that is so eagerly and desperately needed now, because rather than have a strong female lead, capital S, capital F, capital L, which everything about her screams, you know, look at me, I am the strong female lead. Actually have a strong female lead that shows you her, you know, insecurities and her profundities and her absurdities and her hurt. Actually show it. Don't declare it. Don't put it on a flag. Just let us see a person. But the last thing I'll say, I agree. And the last thing I'll say is just, the reason I really love the movie, there's just like, it's, to me, it was immeasurably fun. I don't know. I, Stephanie, did you find it, I just found it so much fun to watch visually, the music. It was a little dark, like visually dark for me. You know, those dark, those movies where all the mm-hmm. scenes are dark. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had no idea how old she was supposed to be. I didn't, I also did not realize that she, maybe this is like on me. I didn't realize she worked for the photo, like she was the, the photographer's assistant. I was like, is she at the school? Is she a teacher? How do they yeah. know each other? Why is she 25 and at a school? Like I had so many questions the whole time. I also couldn't figure out, like, I know a lot of the controversy is like that he's, so he's supposed to be 15 and she's supposed to be 25, I think, or a little bit older. And so the whole like tension a little bit and also some of the, like the reception of it is like, that's a, that's a problematic relationship. I was so confused because he looks really old. Like, I was just yes. like, I'm looking at these they people. Both and look they, 20. Look this, Basically, they, they both look 20. They both look, look the 20. same age. Yeah. And so yeah. I kept being like, am I supposed to be thinking about the fact that they're supposed to be different ages, even though I don't see it on screen? The greatest thing is that he's actually based on a guy named Gary Getzman, who was a child actor, who starred in a Lucille Ball movie, which is alluded to here, who also opened a pinball arcade and a waterbed store. Like this, I, this is what LA was like in the seventies. Like, yeah, you were, did some acting, you sold some waterbeds, you you were at a pinball arcade. I want to move there. You missed your calling, Mark. I did. Can I assign us our next movie? Book clubs failed miserably with us. Can we just do movie clubs from now on? Sure. Can I assign okay. us our, our next movie club viewing? It's not streaming yet, but it's well worth the time and effort to go see in theaters, and it will be streaming very shortly. I'm going to expense this movie straight to tablet. And it has Jenny Slate portraying a character called Big Nose, literally. I'm in. Let's do it. What is it? It is the majestic, incredible, incomparable, everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm not going to say anything, anything about this movie. Uh, because the less you know about it, the better off you are. But it is truly one of the most original, incredible works of art I have seen in a very long time. In. That's it. What's it called again? Everything, everywhere, all at once. of the Jews. Just some wonderful little quick bites this week. The first one is not properly news of the Jews, but if you listen to our show, you'll know why it is. 
This is from NBC News' website. Russia deployed trained dolphins to guard Black Sea naval base, satellite images showed. The dolphins may be tasked with preventing Ukrainian divers from infiltrating the Sevastopol Harbor underwater and sabotaging warships there, according to a naval analyst. Okay, so this is a problem for us because we've been saying for years that the conspiracy theory is that Israel is deploying bats, dolphins, otters, tardigrades, uh, and assorted other- The Heim sisters. Fauna. To, to to thwart the national aspirations of the Palestinians and others is nonsense. But it turns out that Russians actually can train dolphins to fight Ukraine. Someone someone in the Kremlin was listening to Unorthodox like, <laughs> Comrade Putin, I have a good idea. This Jew Mark Oppenheimer, he said you could train dolphin to make assassination. You want me try? Now, Leo, you scoured the globe to find our second story coming to us straight from Mexico. Can you tell us about the, the wedding down there? Really, this this one has everything. You should take a moment and, and search for this on the Jewish Telegraphic Agency because it has a photo. Uh, I'm going to describe what I see in, in this photo. Uh, so it's, it, it's a beetle bug, you know, one of those 1960s iconic cars. Uh, it is painted all in camo. There's a huge Nazi flag draped all over the front of the car. And then there is a bride and a groom. The bride is in a traditional wedding dress. The groom is in full SS regalia. And interestingly enough, they both look exactly like Hitler, especially the bride. And the headline is this. Mexican couple hosted a Nazi-themed wedding, their second ceremony on Hitler's anniversary. It starts like this. Jewish and anti-racism groups in Mexico are raising alarm after a couple married in a Nazi-themed wedding there last week. The couple, who have been identified only by their first names, Fernando and Josefina, took place in etc., 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 the 77th anniversary of Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun. This might have been troubling if it weren't for the quote, from the groom <laughs> that is my absolute favorite thing that I have read all year which I wish to share with you right now are you ready producer Josh Cross please sentimental music I understand that for many people Hitler represents genocide racism and violence people on the other hand make judgments without having all of the facts the groom told Mexican news outlet Millennium Hitler was a vegetarian who rescued his country from famine and returned to his people the lands lost during World War I. His friends and family adored him. We were led to believe that Hitler was a racist, but he came to greet Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympics. I mean, this is just incredible. Co-opting vegetarianism for anti-Semitism. That's class all the way. He looks in the photo like Fred Armisen is playing him in a sketch about something. <laughs> I know we could like literally break down every line of this amazing statement. My favorite one is people, on the other hand, make judgments without having all the facts. I mean, the one like to their credit, the Nazis gave us most of the facts. Like they left <laughs> impeccable records. A lot of the but facts. If you want to know what Hitler's thinking, like there's a book where he laid out his thinking. Like, I think we actually have all the facts in this in this one instance. We have all the facts to make all of the judgments about Hitler. I'm with you there. And you know what these guys need? This couple with their Nazi-themed wedding? They need to understand that May is apparently Jewish American Heritage Month, which was not something I knew until um, you brought it to my attention, Stephanie, by circulating the press release from Worcester Polytechnic Institute, the very fine college in Worcester, Massachusetts, the city about 40 miles east of and inferior to my hometown of Springfield. 
So good of Worcester Polytech to <laughs> honor the Jewish Americans among us. Um, but the best part is, so I'm just going to read to you from this press release. Worcester Polytechnic Institute celebrates Jewish American Heritage Month 2022 by honoring and highlighting the diverse culture, heritage, and contributions of the Jewish community throughout history, blah, blah, blah. Then it quotes President Biden saying, the Jewish American story and the story of our nation as a whole is fueled by faith, resilience, and hope. Then they give you resources to go explore Jewish culture. If you're more curious about these people called the Jews, they give you stuff to read or to watch or to listen to. Stephanie Butnick, can you tell us what Worcester Polytechnic Institute recommends people go listen to if they want to know more about the Jews? Second bullet point from the bottom of this very long list is listen to the Unorthodox podcast. There is a link to us. Um, and I don't know. I'm just tickled that we could be part of this Jewish American Heritage Month. I have to say that for us here on, on this here humble podcast, I'd, I'd venture to say that every month is actually Jewish American Heritage Month. So we are actually not observing. Except for September, because we, except for Tishrei, because, you know, we take off for the holidays. Even if you're not big into pop culture, you know our next guest because she was one of the stars of The Big Bang Theory. She is a host of Jeopardy. She is a neuroscientist, an actress, and now, for the first time ever, a director. She joins us to talk about her directorial debut, as they say in Yiddish, as they made us. Here she is, the great Mayim Bialik. Maya and Bialik, welcome back to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. Happy Omer to you. How's how's your Omer going? You know, my Omer's just rocking along, just counting <laughs> the days till revelation over here. Awesome. Here too, here too. We love you and we are always happy to talk to you, but we're especially happy to talk to you right now because you've just made your directorial debut with the film As They Made Us. So tell us, we have so many questions for you. Tell us about this film. Well, some people are calling it like the Jewiest non-Jew movie ever because it's very, very Jewish without it being about specifically something Jewish. I wrote this script. I've never written a screenplay. And my father, uh, Zichron Alevracha, passed away seven years ago. And I did the rock solid year of intense mourning that Judaism <laughs> thinks is a good idea. As one does. So I did, I did that. It's very intense. And after that year, you know, like long story short, I started writing and it wasn't that the writing was cathartic per se. It was that everything before that was the catharsis that led to me kind of wanting to put down thoughts, feelings, images, music, like things that were coming to me. And I sat on it for a very long time and eventually showed it to a couple people close to me. And then eventually Dustin Hoffman and Candace Bergen play the parents in the movie. And Diana Agron plays the daughter who's kind of balancing her complicated parents. And she has an estranged brother played by Simon Helberg from my Big Bang Theory days. He's actually the first person that I kind of cast in my head for this. And 
we made this movie. It was, you know, it was a very small film, very low budget, which means that it's, you know, mostly streaming. So like if you have Amazon Prime or, you know, other places that you watch movies, that's where you can see it. It, it, it is in some theaters, but you have to live in very specific parts of the country to see it in a theater. You, know, you, you do so much with this directorial debut. You tell your own story. As you say, you tell a deeply Jewish but not Jewish story. You do something actually really even greater for the Jewish people, and that's letting Diana Agron play Jewish. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. So it's also, I should say, you know, I, I kind of promised myself and my family that I, I would not sell this because it's not an autobiography or memoir, but obviously there are many, many things from my life and my childhood and my present as well. But yes, Diana is Jewish. And she thought it was really funny that I think in Shiva Baby, she was like, I think the only Jew playing a non-Jew, like the whole thing is hilarious. She even sings in Yiddish in this movie. She sings Vos Given is Given, which was one of my grandfather's favorite songs. And it's a lullaby. And she sings that. She recites the Shema. So does Candace Bergen. Who is, as far as I know, not a Jew, right? <laughs> Um, correct. And that was actually the first thing Candace wanted to talk to me about. She's like, you know, I'm not Jewish, right? Well, I, I do know. Yes. Most people do know that. Um, but what's funny is Candace Bergen actually improvised some of the Yiddish that she uses in the movie. She grew up with a lot of Jews in Los Angeles. You know, my mother always wanted to pass as a Gentile as a child. So my mother said, this is perfect casting. It's amazing. Right. Like you're right. If you want to pass as a Gentile from our mother's generation, <laughs> yes. the idea that of all that Candace Bergen, that sort of Shiksa goddess Candace Bergen would play you. hundred percent. Your mother must, this must have been the greatest moment of her life. Oh, she's like, this makes total sense that like Vogue cover model Candace Bergen is playing the mother inspired by the lady from, you know, born in World War II speaking Yiddish. Before we move on from Diana Agron though, were you a Glee fan? I mean, to me, this is, there's hardly any better cat. Just to see her in anything is, takes me back to, you know, 2009. Were you a fan? No, I was actually not. I'm not going to say I wasn't a fan. I was not a Glee watcher. I did a little something in the 2000s called Having oh, Children right. and Getting a Doctorate. I don't think I watched any television. And <laughs> I'm like just enough older that that wasn't, you know, necessarily a sh- Like I was watching like, you know, like weird, like sci-fi nerdball shows. And I'm like a D&D person. So what I knew is that she had a very personal reason for wanting to do this story. And while I don't, I mean, first of all, I'm a first time director. Like I literally feel like they just like let me loose with actors in Zooms. (laughs) And Diane was like, I really want to do your movie and here's why. And I was like, "Uh, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. So I can't believe they trusted me to like make decisions, but um, I'm not really like a, ooh, she instinctually like feels she wants to do it. Let's go with her vibe. But in this case, it was very specific and she's spoken about it. I have I have a podcast called Mind Beyond's Breakdown, and she actually spoke about um, her father who has advanced multiple sclerosis, and she's been a caregiver, really, for a lot of her life. And so this film meant a lot to her in in terms of a a cathartic process of working through some of that. And I mean, I I think she gives a really beautiful performance, a very, very complicated part, Um, but I just think she's fantastic. All right, so I'm glad you mentioned being a big kind of sci-fi nerd, D&D fan, because when I approached this not knowing anything about it, I thought, oh, wow, 
my biotic territorial debut, it's probably going to be some, you know, time travel, physics, quantum, awesome. And and this is not that. Uh, no, for, I hope for you anyone. have no brush issues. It's not that at all. <laughs> was, was there a part of you ever that said, okay, well, you know, since I need to do this for the first time, let me cut my teeth in something that's, you know, not quite so personal, not so quite intense, uh, you know, a little bit more closely aligned to the things that I, that come to me naturally. I'm, I'm being super honest with you. I wasn't even planning on turning this into a movie. I was writing as an exercise as a writer. I never thought, what should I write? I never thought I would direct. I, I mean, I, I didn't go to film school and I'm not a white male. Like I don't have that sense of entitlement to be like, I should direct. Um, no, I, I had no idea. And what I, what I've read in some of the reviews is like often first time directors do something that is personal. It is, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's easier to write what's true or closer to home. I don't really do things light, you know, just in general, you know, I'm, I'm not a really, uh, I mean, I think I'm fun, but I'm not like a light person in terms of, you know, what I gravitate towards as a viewer. And honestly, I, I can't even, you know, I, I can't imagine I couldn't imagine writing something that never happened. You know, I've only written nonfiction. You know, I've written two books about puberty and neuroscience. I wrote, I wrote a, a, a cookbook and nutrition book. And, and I wrote a book about my experience parenting. Like I, I've never written pretend. So it was very strange to, to dive into this with the structure of a lot of things from my childhood. But it's really more of a writing exercise that kind of, you know, grew. <laughs> and so tell, tell us a little bit about this writing exercise, because you said, earlier that the actual sort of heavy lifting of the morning came in that intense year and, and that the writing process itself wasn't necessarily this cathartic moment. But I, I can't imagine sitting there trying to, to turn these intensely personal, deeply moving, painful experiences into, into art, into, into a screenplay, that there aren't at least a few moments, a handful of moments of, of what, of breakdown. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to be like, no, I had a stoic way about <laughs> me. Like, you know, no, it was very emotional. You know, I, I had the whole thing outlined and yes, there were definitely scenes that I left, you know, for later to, to flesh out and to write. When I wrote, I, I really kind of secluded myself. I wrote a thesis, like literally with a newborn attached to my body. And like, that's not the way to write. You know, I did it for a thesis, but my kids were older and I was able to literally like go to a hotel and essentially lock myself in a room, you know, and let in, you know, red wine and pasta um, <laughs> and French fries at intervals. So, you know, I, I've been in therapy. I've had many breakdowns and since I'm, you know, 16 years old. I've been sort of like, it's been a process of breaking down and building up. And, you know, motherhood was a big one of kind of like bringing you to your knees and sort of breaking a lot of parts of you. And then complicated grief and losing, you know, losing my doppelganger, like losing my parent. That was kind of its own breakdown. And, and I do believe, you know, I was being slightly facetious, but you know, for all the things Judaism doesn't get right, grief and mourning is very, very specific and very particular. And that that year for me was really needed so that I could then write this without it being a painful process. You know, it, it was I didn't I didn't want to do it if it was painful. It's so interesting that you say that because, you know, we, we do think about what Judaism has to say about grief and mourning. And something that this film sheds light on is like what happens before that? before the death. How does Judaism equip us to deal with those really painful moments? Like, you know what happens after. There's the shiva. Like, you you go into that mode 
you click into that mode of what has to happen next. It's so prescribed in a, I think for many people, a very helpful way. But what, what happens before that? I mean, for me, you know, as it is as a scientist who's also a person of faith, you know, the biological processes of of the, the process of transitioning from this world to whatever's next, and it could be nothing, it's not for me to say, that biological process is also a very divine one, you know? And the notion that I can have a belief that our soul remains intact, that does not deteriorate. The body begins a process, I mean, from the moment you're born, right? The body has its own process, but the the, the soul, you know, that remains, at least in my, you know, kind of perception, that's strong throughout. And then it hovers when the vessel is not of use anymore. And for me, like that's sort of what preparing was like. And my father had, he had multi-system atrophy, which is kind of like Lou Gehrig's. It's got some Parkinson's features, but he was cognitively intact with paralyzed vocal cords. And that process, I mean, it was 29 days of really waiting for this person to transition. And the connectedness that I wanted to feel was absolutely rooted in the notion that like, this is the vessel and the vessel is not going to be used anymore. Yeah. There's definitely a holiness in, you know, in, in holding that space. I, I you know, I did, I chanted Vidui for him. It, I removed it from the script because it's so much Hebrew that like when you translate it in like subtitle, it's like, who wants to hear those words? Like I sinned, I kicked, I hit, like, it's not, you know, those aren't fun to translate. Um, but th- those are the things we do in that kind of preparation. And yes, a lot of the, for those of us who do observe halachic things, yeah, we like to have things to do. I had my little book ready. Like, what's going to happen here? What do you do in the hour before? What happens right after? Like, when does the soul really leave? Like, you know, those are things that we create. We create religious structure to, to give us structure. And I, I did happen to lean on that. And I did happen to find you know, comfort in it, again, in that transition. And also, I'm not one of those people who's like, you're going to be in a happy place. Like, everything's fine because I believe in heaven. You know, my father was not a religious person. And what I knew is what I actually wrote in the film, that there is a place that is beyond our consciousness. And in that place, our perception of a loved one suffering or our perception of us suffering, it simply doesn't exist. Like, that's the like Ain Sof of it. That's like, it's, you can't fathom what happens next. So all you really have is what happens here. And that's like, honestly, that's kind of Judaism in a nutshell, you know, as I differentiate it from Christianity, which is really, you know, a lot of like redemption and salvation and like, you'll meet Jesus. Like, we don't have that. (laughs) Just making sure this is very similar to the conversations about the movie that you've had with, say, Entertainment Weekly, right? (laughs) And then what was the year like? I mean, speaking of Jewish rituals, what what was your year of mourning like? Did you say Kaddish? Did you say it often? Did you look for a minion? Like, what what was your practice? I was I was that lady who, uh, and I travel a lot for work. I was that lady, you know, reaching out to Orthodox synagogues saying, I need to say Kaddish. I will not make a fuss. I'm not trying to do a woman of the wall in your shul. <laughs> I'm letting you know I use a I, I will use a modest voice um, because I didn't want them to think it was a political statement or if they recognized me for them to think I'm like doing a let's out all the Orthodox synagogues that make me stand behind a wall, which right. is sometimes there's a podcast for you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Seriously. Um, yes, I did recite Kaddish. Um, I went, I often went, um, for, for three, I, I could do three some days depending on my work schedule and depending on the season, I sometimes would get up at, you know, five 30 in the morning, um, go to minion, go to work and then hit, you know, Mincha and Mariv on the way home. 
I would say I, I did it most days. It was very, there was an orthodox, a, a right-wing Orthodox community walking distance from me. So I could sometimes walk also if it was Shabbos. They created a corner for me. It's not that they don't want women. It's that literally women never go. So we had to sort of figure out where does Mayim stand, you know? That was a huge component of my year. Again, my father was not religious. This is not something I was doing for him. It was a place to put my body and force myself to be with humans so that I could feel whatever I was feeling. Some days I was bored. Some days I was annoyed. Some days I was angry, just like at the structure of Judaism. Um, some days I was, you know, um, angry at God. And other days I, you know, read Psalms that I've never read before. I had never really been to like a proper morning service except for like the holidays when you have to go. So I learned all about the weekday service. I saw the men with the tefillin and synagogue. Like these are things I didn't grow up seeing. I didn't grow up Orthodox. And even when I became from, like when I became more religious, I wasn't going to morning services in Orthodox shuls. I also didn't listen to live music. If I had to go to a party, like for work, like a work event, I would basically go for the minimum time and leave. I didn't do any like open socializing. I didn't wear bright colors. I was nominated for my first Critics' Choice Award and won in my year of grief. I wore a dark green and that felt okay. Um, I would have preferred to wear black, but my publicist was a little concerned that it was like a little too much of Mayim grieving in public, um, even though I just prefer to wear black anyway. Right, it's just New York City Mayim. By the way, I'm sorry, what a mind-blowing conversation to have with your publicist. Like, well, you know, Halacha teaches us, be like, Mayim, uh, TMZ teaches us something different. <laughs> Well, and I was also, I was also going to say, um, my, you know, my father was in hospice. He, he passed at home. And so the hospice, um, they give you a year with your rabbi. And we happened to have been assigned this hospice rabbi who was this like super awesome, groovy woman who had become a rabbi at like 50. And she was like tie dye. Awesome. Like she was very progressive, which really spoke to my mom and my dad. But like her tallest, I can only imagine the, the the level of color. Technicolor. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that tallest is for real. I got to meet with her every week. That's part of the hospice system is they meet with you as counseling for your year. So that was really you know incredible. Um, and yeah, the year of grief is very very strange. And I did. I would travel. I remember I was in Savannah, Georgia. I was in a synagogue that literally had no women's section because they ne literally never had a woman there. Um, I, you know, I've said Kaddish in really uncomfortable places where my head was like hitting a wall or a curtain. I've felt not part of, I've been, I've been the 10th person and not counted in my own minion. It doesn't feel good. And yet there is value to me in being able to know I can say Kaddish every day when I want to. And I can't do that at a reformer conservative synagogue that doesn't hold a minion every day. So it was a real wrestling with my tradition and also remembering to focus on the purpose of this, which was to center me and to put me in my community and to have me as a public, you know, a public mourner, which is what I was. A, a scientist in entertainment, observant person in Hollywood, a Kaddish saying woman in Orthodox circles, you really, you really don't do things by half measures, right? You do the outside thing, you do it. Writing all the my way. dating profile right now. That is my <laughs> dating profile. No, I, I don't really do things in half measure. I mean, I definitely there are many things in Judaism that I don't do in full measure and also in life. But yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a super feeler, as we call them. I think they now call us like HSPs. We're highly sensitive people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm yes, I, I'm an empath. I'm intuitive. I'm I'm an indigo child. I'm I'm that late. 
there's, there's so many shelves of books for you in the wellness section of Barnes and Noble. Speaking of, of, of wellness and feeling, it's been a tough couple of years on the wellness and feeling front for all of us, um, COVID wise. And I'm curious how your kids, are they teenagers now? Yeah, I have a, oh, I have one that was bar mitzvahed over COVID. We had the backyard, uh, COVID bar mitzvah. He's, well, he'll be 14, uh, in, um, August. And then I have a, a 16 and a half year old, the 17 in October. So I'm just curious. I mean, they're, you know, they're not, they're not in the womb, right? I mean, they're kind of their own people and probably making some of their own decisions about where to go and where not to go. But where have you fallen on the, you know, the continuum from like utterly panicked and locked down on the one hand to Alabama on the other hand, like where, where have you been? We, we really, we did a very, very severe, significant lockdown um, socially for all of us, you know, in our family. And, you know, I, I'm divorced. And another reason I'm grateful for the way that we've worked our divorce, mostly aligned, you know, because sometimes you can have one parent in one house who's like, we go disco dancing because we don't believe in COVID. And then the other one is me. Um, but no, we're, we're pretty closely aligned. So, um, you know, our kids, our, our kids have always been homeschooled. So like classes online wasn't that big of a deal to them because they, a lot of their learning they do with their dad. And, you know, we have very obedient, neurotic children because that's how both me and my ex-husband, just personality-wise, we just- Well done. I mean, here's the thing. There's a lot of things that I'm sure they don't like about how persnickety and anal retentive we are. But yes, if you give them a rule, they will follow it and point out to you when you violate it. So it's actually been an interesting transition trying to have them understand like, the larger patterns of science and COVID and how it works and that there is a point that we do start re-entering the world, but we do it this way and we do it safely. And, you know, I still don't eat in restaurants uh, inside. I've done it a couple times, not in LA County and in a place where I'm like by the door and there's no one in there. My kids have been to two movies with their dad very recently as like an experiment. I have not been to the movies yet. I still do most of my stuff online. You know, I have a produce CSA that I'm part of anyway, you know, I've been working, like I work with hundreds of people and if I get sick, everybody doesn't work. So I've been very obnoxious about that. And, you know, I'm an introvert. So there's also part of me that's like, I'm really good. Just like hanging out with my kids on the weekend. And I don't have a strong desire for socialization. I miss my friends for sure, but I, I do some stuff online. I do some, you know, I did Jewish learning online a lot in that first year before I went back to work. But yeah, my kids are, you know, pretty annoyed with us, but I think also just an annoyed with a lot of the misinformation and the confusion in our country. I mean, I was going to ask, and I'm, this is obviously a topic you've been down many, many times with the vaccines because people have misunderstood your position on it and gotten it wrong and you've corrected them. Yeah. And they still, I corrected them. I put out a YouTube video being like, we are vaccinated. I, the vaccines work. I promise they do. And still people are like, she's an anti-vaxxer. I don't know what Well, else. that's what I was going to I was going to ask if now that the, the political valence of being vaccine skeptical has completely flipped, if that's been a little weird for you, like now are there sort of conservatives trying to pull you into their- At the beginning of the pandemic, I had conservatives being like, I see how you feel. And I'm like, yeah, I don't feel that way. And I never <laughs> And they were like, I think I'm going to leave, you know, I'm going to leave LA. I can't deal with all this. And I'm like, yeah, please go somewhere else where other people don't believe in COVID. <laughs> 
Well, you know what we believe in? We believe in Jeopardy. How's that? What is it? What is your job on Jeopardy now? Like it's. I don't I don't know. I they they call us co-hosts. I know that when I'm not working on Call Me Cat, I'm on Jeopardy and I, I live season to season. And so I know where I'll be through the end of this filming season. And beyond that, I, I don't know, which is not uncomfortable, you know, nerve wracking at all. No, but what what I know is that, you know, that's a it's a huge work priority for me in my life to be part of that Jeopardy universe. And this is not just me being like, I want a job forever. Like, I love what I do there and I, I love it for as long as they have me. You know, that's a job that like the days blow by. It's like t- 12 hours later. I'm like, wow, I I just it's the kind of job where I like it's always new. You know, every hour is something new. I'm meeting new people. And also it's like a, you know, social psychology experiment of like trying to like in two minutes, can I make people feel comfortable, you know, so that we can have a game where they feel good about themselves and confident. And, you know, there's, I don't do it perfectly. You know, you can read any Jeopardy blog and find out all. Which seems to be, by the way, the the introvert's worst nightmare, right? To be this person's like, oh, hey, how are you? Welcome to my living room. No, because she's on stage. That's right. Because introverts can act extroversion. Well, I'm I'm an introvert who basically lives my life as an extrovert. You know, we we call it hiding on a stage. It's very different. That's a a direct function, you know, that I do. And yes, at the end of that day, I don't want to talk to anyone or speak at all. You know, that's, it's all, it takes a lot of energy for me, you know, to do Jeopardy. There's someone in your ear all day and you're balanced. You have to like, you can't say welcome back every commercial break. People will get bored. You got to mix that up. You can't say it's time for double Jeopardy. Sometimes you say, let's play double Jeopardy. Like you're just constantly cycling, thinking, doing, talking. Also, you know, it's, it's a iconic thing. Now, be honest. Do you ever secretly judge people for messing up super obvious questions? Because I do all the time. It's my pleasure of watching the show. Well, that's, that's what you do. That's not what I do. I mean, the the amount of like pressure, just like also for like the timing, like to buzz in, to be able to be articulate under that kind of pressure. I mean, even if I know an answer, if you put me behind one of those podiums, I wouldn't ring in on time. I would likely have a heart attack from trying to ring in on time and like my heart having palpitations. And then I would be so nervous that I'd say a stupid wrong thing. That's what I'd be like as a contestant. Maya, I'm so good to have you back. Tell our our vast audience where they can find your movie. As They Made Us is available um, on demand. So the way I say it is not Netflix. Everybody's saying, is it on Netflix? No, you can get it on Amazon Prime. You can get it any of the places that you rent movies. Otherwise, it's on uh, iTunes. Is that a thing? Yes. And there, there are select theaters where it's playing. If you live in Dayton, if you live in Austin, if you live in Santa Rosa, if you live in uh, New Jersey... There was a theater in Beverly Hills showing it here in L.A., but I'm not sure. In other words, if you live close by to a kosher deli, it's probably showing somewhere (laughs) near you. They should just show it in the deli. That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here. Everyone's going to go watch it, and then we're going to watch Jeopardy. Thank you so much also for your support of this film and um, all the good things that you do. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. 
They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox, two letters this week. One came in the old-fashioned typed way, one on voicemail. First, to the typewritten letter. Hi, all. I heard Mark and Liel rave about Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza on this week's episode. Stephanie, do not believe the hype. I give licorice za two thumbs down, even if it offers some insights to being Jewish. I want to note that I do love many other Paul Thomas Anderson things like Magnolia and There Will Be Blood. And who doesn't absolutely love Fiona Apple? But this film, ugh, it felt over-sexualized, a little bit empty, and it lacked sincerity, and it felt super white. It was all rongo bongo. Stephanie, I can't wait to hear your and baby Edith's review. However, I want to mention the other piece of media that was dropped on this episode by Liel. Is It Cake on Netflix? This show is a masterpiece. Two thumbs up. It beats Licorice Pizza and Heim any day in my book. Seriously, crazy things made out of cake? Tacos? A purse? A hat? A pizza? You name it. Liel, if you enjoy this show, I also wonder if you should enter the Discovery and Food Network world of cooking competition shows. Tournament of Champions, hosted by Guy Fieri, is so, so good. Got my husband hooked, and he can't stop. Best, Danielle. Love me some Guy Fieri. (laughs) I actually saw some comedian on Twitter basically take the premise a step further. Imagining a future in which humans had literally lost the ability to tell things from apart from cake. From cake. (laughs) So it's like, imagine walking through life just wondering, is it real or is it cake? And now this voicemail comes to us from a listener who was touched by Rabbi Alana Garber's piece on last week's episode about her son with Fragile X. Have a listen. Hi, my name is Linda. 
and I'm calling from Gainesville, Florida. And I wanted to comment on the rabbi uh, on the special for Mother's Day, uh, her story about Fragile X. I was left in tears. I have a son who has Angelman syndrome, and it is a genetic disorder, and it was just crushing to find out that my son had that. Um, I was in denial, and it was just very hard. But listening to the rabbi, it just um, was just heartwarming. And the way she stands up for her son is the same way I do mine. J. Crew, we always love hearing from you. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com, where you can also send a voice memo attached, or you can call us and leave a message at 914-570-4869. Our Gentile of the Week is Eddie Chang. He moderates a Facebook group with more than 11,000 members who are all committed to not buying things and instead sourcing them from each other. His group focuses on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's called a Buy Nothing Group, and he's going to tell us all about it. Eddie Chang, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. I feel really honored, believe me. Eddie, it's our pleasure. L- let me let me tell you what uh, what I do when I need stuff. I try not to go on Amazon, but sometimes I do. Or sometimes I'll go to the store or buy online and buy, 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 buy. What do you do? I don't. I, I it actually pains me to go to Amazon. Other than you know a percentage may go to my local school's charity. It really pains me to to sort of have to buy it because I know I could source almost all of it you know, locally within my community. You know, I'm not one that needs to also have the latest and greatest, right? So if I'm a generation or two back, it still functions, right? A year ago, it could have been the best thing on the market. So I'm okay with that. I don't need to have bleeding edge technology. So I source it locally within my buy nothing group. And nine times out of 10, I get what I need or something close enough that I don't have to buy something. Now, you say source it locally within my Buy Nothing group, and it sounds like this quaint, lovely, you know, village square type of situation. But your group right now, you are based in Manhattan's Upper East Side, has, I believe, what, like 10,000 humans in it? I think 10,000 when we first spoke, we are now at 12 and a half. <laughs> 12 and a half thousand New Yorkers. Describe to me what this amazing group of people, what does a day in the life of this group look like? It's a lot of fun. It's its own ecosystem. I find myself seeing stories of joy and sadness and all sorts of kooky things happening within our group. Because we have a fairly large number, we we get a lot of activity. Now, when I joined the group, it was in 2019, and there was probably about 900 members. So it's it's grown since, obviously, and the activity has followed suit with that. So there's a lot of fun stuff happening. You often see things that are sort of to be gifted that someone no longer needs. Sometimes they're fun, kooky, novelty things that you wouldn't think you needed, but then you have to have when you see it, you know, like, I don't know, the unicorn pajamas or, or whatever <laughs> the case may be. Um, but we, we find ourselves kind of living off this ecosystem where your first go-to isn't to Amazon. Amazon or even to the to, to your local store. We do support local businesses, but we'll try to just source it locally first. If someone has an extra of any particular thing, like if my headset broke, I may say before I order, hey, does anyone have one out there? And you know, with the pandemic, a lot of companies are sending equipment over home. And now that people are going back to work, surplus equipment out there. So we'll, we'll, we'll get it locally. And um, the byproduct of that engagement 
which is a great part product is relationships and connections and you're getting to to meet and and know your neighbors right so you're you're doing two goods you're you're preventing one thing from being created right and then adding to the to the sort of supply chain issues in the landfill you're preventing another thing from going to a landfill and the byproduct is you're creating an, a potential connection with someone that may you know may become something greater at a minimum you're getting to your your neighbor I'll get into the connections in a second, and maybe I'll even let Stephanie get a word in edgewise, but I'm a very, very shallow person. Before we hear about the human connections, <laughs> I want to hear about the stuff. Now, you have gotten some pretty great swag from this group. It's not just like, oh, here's a broken down toaster. Tell, tell us about some of the choice items you have received. I've got some crazy things. I mean, it's it's not about always the getting, but I've got some, you know, great things that have come along with it. I've got a MacBook Pro as of recently, not not necessarily the latest generation, but a MacBook Pro. And, and I'm, I'm not on that ecosystem, so it was important for me to kind of get on that to connect to my kids' stuff. Um, I don't know. We, we've, we've gotten a, a TV off of a curb. I've got a World War II hand warmer from a collector who knows that I'm sort of a, an avid fan as well. I've gotten um, a World War II bayonet, which I, I I really, I think it's the most awesome thing. I've gotten, I don't know, lots of tech, lots of cool clothes. I've, I've gotten, more importantly, like help with, with things. So scratching my head because a seam came off of my kid's Halloween costume and it's 24 hours before Halloween, I've gotten people to step in and, and give me a hand in and stitch things up and show me something. And it's been really, it's been really cool. So I would say, you know, over the stuff, those interactions are the most prized to me. But in terms of like superficial value, yeah, I've gotten a, a MacBook, I've gotten a TV, I've gotten a, a cool uh, table side lamp, and I've got old computer game consoles, video game consoles, things that are you know, that are, for me as a collector, it's kind of niched and sort of, you know, high value for me. So how does it work? Are you going there posting saying, hey, I need this thing. Does anyone have a, a MacBook? Or is someone going on and saying, I have all these old clothes. My kid grew out of them. Who needs them? Or does it does it happen both directions? Both ways, totally. We have certain terms that kind of we use in this world uh, of the buy nothing. We we first is an ISO. It's an acronym for in search of. So we hashtag ISO an old banana because I need to make banana bread soon and everything I get in fruit stand is fresh, you know. Or guacamole that's ripe. I need some avocados. So <laughs> ISO that thing. Um, and then alternatively, the other way around, you would you would gift. So I would say I'm gifting something. I'd uh, it would be a flash gift where I need to get rid of it now before. I change my mind or a gift that you would simmer and you would kind of let it sit for a while for 24 hours or so where if someone's not always in front of a computer they can have an opportunity to be equitable in in, in having an opportunity to to get that thing so i've i am a big star wars and marvel sort of memorabilia fan so i may do an, an iso for that thing or for an, halloween for costumes um and then as you know work is sending me things i may gift an extra pair of uh, keyboards or a mouse or an extra monitor that I no longer need or a webcam, that sort of thing. So it's it's a gift. It's a, it's a gifting and an ISO sort of exchange transaction. And where does this come from? Do you know where the first Buy Nothing group was, was created? Yeah, it actually started out in the uh, West Coast in Washington State, um, Puget Island uh, off of Washington. This, this started back in 20, summer of 2013. There were two founders, Rebecca Rockefeller and Lizelle Clark. 
Lizelle Clark had a, a Yahoo group for the Island uh, Garden Share, and they would swap perennials. And then um, Rebecca Rockefeller would have a group called Trash Backwards, where they would you know, do something more kind of in line with Buy Nothing. And the two got together, and they started uh, to come together with their own group. They started with the Bainbridge Barter to swap produce, and it just kind of evolved in time to this, this exchange gift economy. And um, that's where we have it now. So you met a bunch of really interesting people through this endeavor. Tons, tons of really cool people. We have actors and actresses and reporters and local politicians running for local office and a lot of just really cool people too. I've met producers and directors, people into really geeky things that I'm into, even parents of the school. I mean, oddly enough, I've met more parents in my daughter's school through my platform here that I help more than I have through even some of the local community events. It's just, it's, I felt like it's brought a lot of people together and, um, with the onset of the pandemic, it, it sort of lit fire to it because there was more of a need than ever for this thing and everyone was home and on their computer. So it really took off, but a, a lot of people are, are connecting with each other and even local business owners that are, um, kind of, kind of reaching out to, to, to connect with people as well. Um, we're, we're, we're finding connections there to support each other and to, um, and to really feel like one community. So it's been really cool. So when you're on the Upper East Side in your neighborhood, walking around, you might see real life people that you have met as part of this internet group. Yeah, I mean, I think the last one was I was having pizza with my daughters. My my wife was out with friends one night. So it was just like a daddy-daughter night. We we're just having pizza on the corner. It's a nice night in the corner. And then uh, someone I know who's in the group, I don't really know her personally. It's not like, you know, we've hung out, but I know her. She's, she's active in the group. And we've had dialogue, we've exchanged before, walks by, kind of waves her hand, and I wave back. And uh, almost daily, I would bump into at least five people that I would just kind of say, hey, what's going on? How you doing? And and, and that's that's the goal, right? I mean, we feel like, I mean, I grew up of a generation of Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers. So I, I like that feel of a neighborhood. And I grew up on their preside. I grew up in Yorkville you know, all my life. So I grew up at an age where people knew each other's faces. They weren't hiding behind a computer. People were asking each other how their day was. And and we're kind of getting to that through this platform, oddly enough. It starts with maybe I need a, a cup of flour, but then it ends with maybe, you know, how that banana bread go? Want a slice? Hey, that was really good. What's the recipe? It just goes on and on and on from there. So, you know, that happens and it, it's it's really organic and it's, and, it, and it's oddly a byproduct of what we're doing. I'm, I'm, so curious, how does being in this group change your mindset? In other words, so many of us, again, shamefully, myself included, because I think what you're doing is amazing and essential, but, you know, have this notion, we need something, we instinctively reach out to the computer, to the phone, you know, to our purse to, to buy the thing. How does knowing that you're not going to do this change your relationship to objects, to material culture, to being in the world? I think you really start to evaluate what do you want? What do you need? Now, I don't always ask for things that I need. Sometimes I ask for things that I just want and that's okay. There's, there's even novelty things that kind of go out, but you do, you, you second question, you know, what it is that you're really, do you really need that thing? And, you know, for us, we're in New York city apartments. There's, there's only so much space anyway. So you should be challenging what you're introducing to your unit because chances are you, it's, you're not letting go of anything, right? You're just adding to this pile of stuff here. So 
I think people should challenge that a little more. People should also challenge whether you need to really replace something or whether you can fix it. Again, going back to a generational thing, we grew up with fixers. You go to a, a, a shoe cobbler, right, to fix something. You don't you don't just replace it. It wasn't it wasn't that easy. It wasn't as cheap as it is now, and um, it's painful to see that everything is so replaceable. And I think it has a knock on effect with our psyche and us emotionally because everything becomes replaceable relationships you know the way we treat the world is becomes replaceable some things just aren't replaceable and i think you need to sometimes fix something not just replace it amen to that i love that eddie chang you came this is a buy this is our own personal buy nothing group you came with something for us and that is a question that is your Gentile of the Week question. Will you tell us what it is? <laughs> sure. I, I, the question was, what's what's the better show? Is it is it Seinfeld or is it the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? I love it. That's such a that's such a good like New Yorker born and bred question, right? <laughs> <laughs> Liel, I'm curious. I feel as like I, as I dislike both heartily, Stephanie. I'll let you take it. <laughs> so you know, I think it's really interesting because I think they're both of a moment, right? Like. The thing about Seinfeld that's so crazy is that it's such a Jewish show while not actually being Jewish at all, right? There's nothing, they like eat babka, right? It's like, and like it's coded New York in all of these ways that sort of has a lot to do with what that moment was in TV, right? Where like you could be Jewish, but George was Italian and you're sort of like, he's not Italian. I know what he's supposed to be. Like, you know, you sort of, you sort of get it. And so there's all these coded things. And I think it's a, it's a really great question because the comparison is perfect, right? Mrs. Maisel is this over-the-top depiction. It comes at a time when we're actually ready for an in-your-face Jewish show, right? Where, like, they have breakfast. And yes, you know, our listeners have pointed out that they've gotten stuff wrong on the show. And I'm pretty sure that's what Liel, you know, I know Liel doesn't love the show. But it's a really fun depiction of, of like, a very Jewish family. And I think it's so fascinating that you've pulled those two out because they're at these two moments. And obviously that Maisel is not a contemporary show. It's a period piece. But, you know, they're both deeply New York in that way. Like, I guess, you know what? It's funny. It's like there's the Bob guy and then there's the black and white cookie. <laughs> and she calls it just a black and white. And you're like, yeah. I don't know the last time I heard someone on TV be like, I'm getting a black and white, which is how you kind of say it, which yeah. is so funny. For sure. Yeah. And, and that's what I love about those shows. They're, they're so New York and there's Jewish elements as well, but they're not obvious, right? You, you kind of don't know where one ends and the, the other begins. Is that a New York thing or is that a, a Jewish thing or, or, or both? And it's, it's a wonderful way of discovering culture without realizing you're discovering culture, just be, being a New Yorker. So I vote Russian Doll, which is both much more New York and much more Jewish than either of those combined times 10. Oh, to I me. have to watch it. I have to watch it now. Is is like is it out now or is it just been out for a while? And it's the no second season is out now. The first season is out, has been out for a while. Now. Oh, here's a question. Could you share passwords on the group? Like if someone like I want really want to watch HBO Max. No. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> if, if it's illegal, you can't do it. Right. So I can't <laughs> share, you know, a gram of Coke or I can't share, <laughs> you know, how I can shoplift from my local store. And intellectual property is, is well aligned with that. I can't share my local bootleg of Seinfeld season three. You know, <laughs> you can't do that. No, no password sharing. No bueno. I will. I will take it out. I won't kick you out, but I'll, t I'll take it out. I like that. Is there one thing that you could sort of give our listeners one piece of advice? Just you know, maybe there is no buy nothing group for your area. Maybe this doesn't exist already. Maybe you're not ready to join. 
What's like one small thing that we can all start doing to just live? Or, or an ISO that that you want to put out to our community of listeners, something you really want and need a lot of Jews to help you source. Awesome. I mean, I, I, I challenge everyone to to think twice about your consumption. I think it leads to a bad place psychologically. I think when we buy things, uh, we need to challenge ourselves to fix things, learn a skill, grow yourself as a person. And the buy nothing group is no different. If you don't have a buy nothing group, so what? Do something about it. Create, create one yourself. Call it buy nothing. Call it something else. I don't care. Build community. You have the ability to do so. It's, it's free. You can do it. Don't be a passive person in life. Take control. Do something. And stop talking about, you know, donating to save the whales and, you know, UNICEF. Great organizations. But you don't want to do something in your backyard. Do something worth doing and say that, yeah, I, I made that happen. I, I, I helped locate something that someone was going to discard because I knew someone else wanted it. I, I directly impacted. Challenge yourself to try to do it. It's not that hard. It's a lot of fun. And, and you'll, you'll find yourself feeling better for it at the end of the day. I'm so inspired by this. And honestly, for quite some time now, have been kind of challenging myself to have basically consumer Sabbaths, uh, buy nothing days, in which I say, you know what? Now for a day or two, because I'm someone who loves, Stephanie would attest, loves <laughs> buying stuff, really, with a passion. But a couple of days out of a week, uh, or definitely out of a month, in which I say, nothing. Today, nothing. Today, self-sufficient. I love it. Eddie, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you all for, for, for the platform. I appreciate it. Mazel tovs. Liel, have ye a mazel tov this week? I sure do. So if you listen to the show, uh, by now you have come to know and love the former Quintern, now the Quinducer and Quin editor, Quinn Waller. Watch out for a an upcoming installment of Cook Like a Jew featuring yours truly opining on hummus. But today, we wish a mazel tov not to Quinn, but to her father, Michael Waller, who's turning 63 the day this show here airs and who just got engaged. He listens every week. He's a big fan. Mr. Waller, we love your daughter. We are so happy she's with us on this journey. And we wish you, sir, a mazel tov. I would like to give a mazel tov this week to my daughter, Clara, and her Hebrew school classmates, Jesse Madison and Sam Worland and Rachel Anderson for the YouTube channel they have created. It's called JUT, which I think stands for Jesse's Universe of Torah and Talmud or Jesse's Universe of Talmud Teachings or something like that. Jews under Talmudic tribulations. Uh, it's their Jut YouTube channel where they've just put up some very, very funny Jews undergoing Torah transformations. Yeah. <laughs> they put up some very uh, delightful and informative and educational raps and dances and it, their video editing skills are, um, let's just say, uh, better than mine. And uh, they're just doing great work. <laughs> and uh, their teacher, Max Duboff, I think had a hand in it. I don't know. If you're if you're just looking for a, a delightful way to pass uh, six and a half minutes or so, go look at one of those videos. So a mazel tov to them. Uh, Stephanie Butnick? Speaking of great work, I have a mazel tov to artist Jeanette Coven orin whose design was selected as the new U.S. Postal Service Hanukkah stamp. This year, it's just an illustration of a person holding a menorah, burning an ugly Christmas sweater. It's very combative. <laughs> she created, she designed a beautiful stamp and we'll all be able to buy it for Hanukkah. 
Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, and Quinn Waller. And our team includes Star Fredminator, Daron Rousquet, and Tanya Singer. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or as I call it, Twagram Book. You can get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Jillian Cameron at Beth Chaim Hadashim in Los Angeles. And we come to you from the studios of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Anderson Jewish? Uh, no. I know he's married to Maya Rudolph. Is he? Who is Jewish. Yeah. He's married to Maya Rudolph? She's in the movie. Yes, yeah. I learn things all thing the time hosting him. a show. That's, that's the Shabbos dinner you want to be invited to.